What's going on, everyone? Uh, happy Tuesday. Um, I hope you're having a phenomenal day, whatever day it is that you're listening to this. Um, I had a lot of requests um, from Instagram and DMs, and thank you for those, uh, for the 2020 Lessons and Failures. Uh, so this will be a sequel to my 2019 Lessons and Failures, which if you haven't listened to that one, I think uh, uh, my, my year-long recaps are, I think, some of my better ones. Um, but it's obviously up to you. So this one will probably be a little longer than what you're used to. Um, and that's because trying to summarize what I learned in a year is hard in one episode. Welcome to the game where we talk about how to get more customers, how to make more per customer, and how to keep them longer, and the many failures and lessons we have learned along the way. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. For those of you who don't know, uh, I, I keep an ongoing email thread to myself um, consistently consolidating uh, 2020 lessons and failures. So I have this big thread um, that I just continue to email myself whenever I feel like I learn a lesson. And so um, I will do my very best to tell you each of the lessons that I learned and how I learned it. And 2020 was a was a packed year of lessons for me. And so, oh, where to start? From the Five hundred, you know, million dollar mastermind. I learned a lot um, from there. I really learned about scale um, and seeing the people that were doing more than me all were going after bigger markets. So there's really two options uh, for me to do that within the context of gym launch. One is uh, go after, find alternative and additional channels uh, to grow the business. Uh, because, you know, it's not like we've sold 100% of gyms. And so that means that I have to find new ways to reach them. So if my traditional advertising methods, um, obviously, you know, you can exhaust a platform, uh, especially if there's a niche, uh, it's usually much bigger than you think it is. Uh, but you may, you may not have reached every single person on that platform, but you may have reached every person that you could reach on that platform profitably. Um, so that's kind of the, the differentiation. And so uh, for me, seeing all these people who were doing more than me and I was, you know, providing value to them in a lot of ways. And I, it's, it's always like, it's been a consistent effort of mine to try and understand if there's anyone who makes more money than me, what it is that they have or what it is that I have that they do not have. Um, because sometimes the question is not, so this is an interesting one for you that I've learned also is it's not always good to say, uh, what does this person have that I don't? Sometimes it's, what do they lack? that I have. And I think oftentimes it's more frequently the case, which is why it's always backwards, which is why I think the learning process is interesting. And so, uh, you know, champions beat normal people at their endeavor, not because they have something the other person doesn't, but because they lack the ability to stop working. They lack the off switch. And so I think sometimes not only thinking, what do they have, but what do I have that's limiting me rather than what do they have that's giving them an advantage over me? So first off, just even switching my thought process to thinking that way has been a lesson of 2020 um, for me from an entrepreneurial perspective. Um, before I go any further, I'll just say this so that you know I'm supposed to keep things interesting during these podcasts. So we hit our $100 million um, amount in 2020, which is kind of weird. So just to, to clarify this for anyone, uh, the reason is I didn't put it on this award yet is because uh, I'm not very handy with things and I'll probably mess it up. So I'll have someone else do it. Um, <laughs> but just for transparency, that means I've done a hundred million dollars in total sales in the last three and a half years. Um, and so we did, we did 30, we did 28 million in, we did 7 million in, in, in 20, 
16, we did 28 million in 27 in 20, 2018. We did uh, 37 million in 2019. And uh, in 2020, I think we finished at 31. Uh, we're still getting the final books for this year. Um, but yeah, so that was, you know, that's the that's the deal. That's how we, we hit 100 million. So it's not like I did 100 million in 2020, just for full transparency, because I think some people thought that. That's not what it was. Um, but I made a, a podcast about how uh, I, I've been stuck at 30-ish million for three years, and I finally figured out what I need to do to, to fix it. And um, among those is hiring really good talent. Uh, that is one. Um, another one, and that sounds like so like, duh, Alex. But I feel like it's so many times the lessons that I learn are not, like nothing's novel. Like nothing's novel. It's just at what point does, we call them singe moments, but at what point does something that you've heard your whole life become real for you? You know, um, for some of us, it's like be kind to others. It's something you hear your whole life, but maybe some moment or some event triggers that for you and you're like, maybe I should be kind to people. And then you start changing the way you live. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, I've always heard niche down. I think it's important to niche, especially when you're starting. Um, but you will eventually be constrained by that niche. Uh, but that being said, if you're like, I get this one all the time from our clients, which is like, man, I, I got it. my niche is too small. And like homies doing like 500 grand a year. I'm like, your niche is a $6 billion industry. And you think that you doing half a million dollars a year is somehow tapped that niche. You just have such a poor business model that your lifetime value of a customer is so low that you can only profitably reach a half, I mean, like a, a quarter of a quarter of a quarter of a percent of your market. So it's really important to delineate between, am I capping my niche or are the economics behind my business model stifling my ability to, to scale and grow profitably? I think those are two very different things. And everyone just likes to say, likes to point outwardly because it's easier to say, oh, my niche is small. Um, rather than thing, saying, no, my, my business model sucks and I have no way of profitably reaching these people, which either means you need to fix your business model or you need to find alternative or additional acquisition channels. Um, and so for us, I think we have a, we have a, I don't know of a lot of businesses that have higher LTV from, from, you know, micro gym owners than us. And that's candidly because we provide more value than everyone else does in the marketplace. That is why you get rewarded. And so, uh, I, I mean, I always am trying to expand LTV, provide more value, find ways that we can, you know, solve problems. Um, and I, I will always continue to do that. But given the numbers that we have, um, the, the le one of the lessons of 2020 is expanding additional acquisition channels. And so we were able to build an outbound acquisition channel in 2020. So that was um, uh, really cool. And the additional part of what made that cool for me was that I actually had someone else own the entire process end to end. So when I talk about hiring high-level talent, it's really, for me, transitioning from the what to the who, and you've probably heard that before, but on some level, it became real for me, and the obsessive nature of the entrepreneur of wanting to learn how to do everything is absolutely required in the beginning, but as you scale up, it is more about finding the who, but the thing is, is that in the beginning, you think too soon you need to find the who, and in reality, you still need to learn the things uh, that make the business work, and so I think that's why context and timing is so hard with these things because we have to find like when I'm trying to give, you know, advice, it's, you know, you have to take it within like your current paradigm. And I understand that that's difficult. And that's why sometimes it's hard listening to billionaires because it's like their paradigm of, 
of what's happening, what is what, what are the successful actions for them right now in their in their current chapter is different than somebody who's at zero or at a hundred thousand dollars a year. And so I'm going to try and cater this as broadly as I can with as much you know contextual points as possible. So uh, number one, adding additional channels. Number two, focusing on who, not what, and specifically high value who. And my picker, my ability to judge the quality of talent has increased. Um, I think I've gotten better at it. Uh, I was not nearly as good at it years ago. And I don't know how you learn that without experience. So that is, that is something. Um, try and find people with preloaded solutions. So as a, as a caveat to that, that's one of my lessons, which is like, I've, I've now found people who come preloaded with solutions. They come batteries included. You know, I'm like, hey, here's my problem. I can point them at it. And they're like, oh, this is all the things we need to do because I've already done this three times. I'm like, got it. Yes, please go do that. And, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a corollary to that, my role within the company, I would say in 2020 transitioned from being uh, CEO to being investor slash owner slash stakeholder, shareholder, whatever way you want to say it. But really, I would say for the first time in 2020, I really transitioned to being above the business. Um, not in like a weird, arrogant way, just like not truly being out of it. And so I think there's definitely levels to being out of it. You know, first you're, uh, you, you own your own job, right? You're self-employed and that's just you doing things for other people for money. You just, someone else is paying you and you're doing stuff. You know, above that, you start becoming a manager and managing other people, right? And then above that, you become a leader. And then above that, in my opinion, you become an executive, right? Which is like leading organizational change in, in departmental change around objectives that are going to protect the business or grow the business, right? And I think the level above that is where I, I feel like this year I was able to get to. I could be wrong. We'll find out in 2021 lessons and failures. Uh, but but I right now I'm not I don't actually do anything um, in the business besides meet with two leaders a week um, and really advise on the ways that we can strategically improve the business and provide more value. And so that's really the majority of my time is like looking at the overall marketplace and thinking like, how can we provide more value in a strategic way to everyone, right? And what are, of, of the many ways, what is the one thing that we're going to focus on? And so I think 2020 was also a really uh, humbling year for me because uh, we got to refocus on the few things that provide the most value. And so for us, it's, we need to get gyms leads because that's what everyone wants. Uh, we need to make gyms more money because that's what everyone wants. And that's about it. <laughs> you know, pretty much any other, you know, endeavors that are not focused on those things uh, are kind of a waste. Uh, as much as, you know, people may need to have better retention tactics, better, um, you know, better profit margins. And we talk a lot about that. Whenever we do talk about that, we lose, people lose interest because entrepreneurial, most entrepreneurs that I serve um, only think about revenue, right? They only think about growth. Um, rather than what am I taking home? You know, how much risk am I exposed to? That kind of stuff. And I think that just comes with time. But I um, will practice what I preach and not sell what I want to sell. I will sell what they want to buy. And so that is uh, how, you know, we've, we've cut a ton of excess out in 2020 um, in the business. And so uh, really focusing on a handful of key priorities um, has been really useful. And interestingly, I think the business has actually improved since I've moved further away from it because I tend to break things a lot because I, I want to fix it till it's broken, if you know what I mean. 
And so giving our leadership space to just transact, you know, run the business has been um, really valuable. And I think it's actually been, I think it's been better for the business overall. So uh, those are some of uh, my, um, my initial lessons. I've got a whole bunch, so I'm just going to keep going through this. So one of the next ones was um, I was talking to Brooke Castillo. She has an amazing business, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, if you've heard of her uh, Life Coach School podcast, uh, check her out. She's an amazing podcast. She's a huge following. Um, and she didn't say this directly, but like the, the term that came in my mind was scale, scale zero and simple scales and or zero scales. Um, I'll have to come up with something catchy for that. But basically, the reason that I had to be, get into the, you know, quote, in investor or owner type role, I believe, is because if I am involved in any really day-to-day activity, I will become the bottleneck, right? And it's not a bottleneck of communication, which is what happens when you are the manager as a bottleneck, but as, as, as somebody who even provides value in any way, if it requires you to be there to provide the value, then as soon as the team grows outside of you providing that value, if it cannot grow without you providing whatever that value is, uh, then it will stop there. And so I think that's 2020 was really my transition of, uh, of moving above that. And so I think that was kind of the win for the year. Um, and so that was kind of one of the lessons that I learned is, is you have to scale zero. Like I have to get myself to doing nothing and still have the company make money and grow and be profitable, et cetera, in order for us to be able to grow beyond where we're at. And I think that's much easier said than done, um, especially because a lot of companies start because the entrepreneur is skilled in a certain way or has a variety of skills, which is usually what happens. We have a stack of skills, which is why, you know, why we start growing. Um, and then somehow you have to, in the beginning, extricably, you know, or intrinsically link yourself to every aspect of the business is what makes it grow. And then piece by piece, peel off each of these skills and traits and, and things that you don't even know you do in the business to keep it moving. And, um, that's taken time and it's, and it's taken trial and error and it's been, uh, difficult, but ultimately rewarding. Um, because now, right now it's, it's, I would say like one day a week is focused on all my leadership meetings. Um, and that's it. And then beyond that, it's just strategic insight. Uh, on monthly and, and quarterlies. So um, that's given me a lot more time to really focus on the industry and how we can and, and help overall rather than being kind of like in the in the tactics. Um, next one. Um, I have this belief and it just continues to be reinforced that see if you can just keep growing and not hire people. Um, we have had... Uh, I mean, all you got to do is look at our, our atrocious Glassdoor reviews, um, which suck, uh, to know that like we have we hire fast, um, we've had a tendency to hire fast and fire fast, so we have followed that mantra. Um, but I and the thing is, is part of the difficulty of having a business that that grows quickly is um, or has any level of volatility month to month is that you have these waxing and waning demands for labor, right? And so it's like you need five people, and then the next month you don't need the five people anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying we hire five people and then let them go. It's more that, like, that consistent variability uh, can be annoying from a, from a payroll and labor standpoint. And what's unfortunately happened many, many times is we'll bring people on, um, we will solve the problem and then they won't 
and it really should be like, you know, for defined periods of time, you know, like project based and whatnot. Um, the problem will be solved. And after we let the people go, the business grows more. And that's kind of weird and backwards for me as an entrepreneur. And so I'm going to just try and make sense of it out loud with you. Um, but I, I kind of have this belief that only one out of five employees in a company is, is providing value. Like I, I actually like kind of believe that, uh, kind of the 80, 20 people are fractal. Um, I just can't like, I, I just, the amount of times that we've literally gotten rid of like a department because it just like, we, we created a department, for example, to solve a problem. Let's say it was churn and provide value in all these ways to solve churn. And then after scaling that, after six months realizing that churn is completely unaffected and we just took 20 more employees on and then having to just be like, well, guys, you didn't solve the problem. And as much as you're doing stuff, it doesn't, is not doing anything. Right. And so then we have to, you know, let people go because it is a business. And, um, and then, and, and then just realizing that the business literally doesn't change at all. Like revenue doesn't change. Churn doesn't change. Profit doesn't change. Well, profit goes up and that's it. And it's just like, it's mind blowing to me. It's like, there are so many people, especially as your organization grows that you're like, this person was totally unnecessary. And that's crazy. Cause from the employee perspective, it's like, how can you do that? And I understand that perspective. But on the flip side as the owner, you're like, man, this, this person was $90,000 a year. Like people are afraid of signing up for a mastermind and yet will or, or hire an employee for $50,000 a year without even thinking about it. And it's just like, which of these things is providing more value? You know what I mean? And so that's, that's something that's been like mind blowing to me is, is seeing a company grow after shrinking. It's like, it's crazy. And it's happened so many times. And it happened twice in 2020 for us, where I would get rid of a key team or a key, you know, series of individuals who were doing a role that we, we were tracking metrics on and we kind of implemented it into, to, to provide a solution. And then it, and then it disappeared. Right. And because the, the solution, like, it did not solve the problem and therefore was not providing the value that it was supposed to. And so people were essentially cutting grass with scissors, which doesn't, they're doing stuff, but it doesn't mean it's, it's being valuable. Right. And so, um, I am now really trying to add the constraints to, I want to see if we can grow with no people. Like how can we look at Berkshire Hathaway, right? How can we look at Warren Buffett who has 19 employees and runs a gigantor, you know, company, how can we find fewer, smarter, people that are preloaded with solutions, like I said earlier, but it's like, I'm just trying to hit at this in multiple ways because it's, it's really ingrained in me this year, how important having an A player is compared, like one A player literally does more work than five B players. It's crazy. Like most people actually do nothing. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. Like most people don't do anything. And, and, and that's why they can't progress. I mean, like, as a, as a tangential side story, you know, I, I, there's a guy that I, I've seen in a mastermind. This is an entrepreneur, right? And he's, uh, you know, he's like, Hey, you know, and this is three years ago when I met him, he was like, yeah, I'm going to start running Facebook ads. And I was like, awesome. Fantastic. Like, that's a great idea. And cause his biggest issue was that he couldn't get lead gen, right? Sorted. And I saw him at an event three years later and I was like, Hey man, how's it going? You know, how's the business, whatever. And, uh, he was like, yeah, just, you know, we're going to start, we're going to, we're definitely going to start Facebook ads soon. And I was just like, bro, it's been three years. Like, what are you doing? You're like, what are you like? What are you doing? You know what I mean? Like you, it just, it, you know what I mean? There's different, it's different for me. If someone's like trying to figure out what the obstacle is versus knowing what the obstacle is and not doing anything about it. 
that's that's the one that kind of drives me nuts. And so it's, I was like, dude, if you literally spent one day and just Googled how to run a Facebook ad, you would be able to run a Facebook ad by the end of the day. Like, this is not a quarter-long solution. Like, do it. You know what I mean? And so I say that to say a lot of people think they are productive when, in, in fact, they are busy and actually do nothing. Um, and I don't know if it's, it's their fault or whatever, but um, that is just an observation that I've had. And seeing the company become more profitable and grow, even while we contracted resources, is um, sadly uh, reassuring or reaffirming. And so it's just like, you probably know if you're in a, in a company of any size that like, there's like a handful of people that you know, that everybody knows because those are the people who move, right? Like there are people in our company that I don't know who they are and I don't know their names. And I'm like, who? They're like, oh, we let go of Kelsey. And I'm like, who's Kelsey? And then now I've kind of been like, well, if I don't know their name, that's why they got let go. Because if you're doing something, I will hear about you. They're like, oh yeah, this new girl in blah, blah, blah is killing it, right? I'll hear about it. Um, but if I'd never hear your name, it's because you're not doing anything. So anyhow, that's, uh, that's that another one of the lessons. I told you this was gonna be a longer one and uh, probably more encapsulated. Ah, okay, next one. Oh my God, data management is has been the biggest mistake or has been the has been the thing that I messed up the most in the last three years, which is having a really good ERP or CRM that I run everything through that is properly set up. And I this has plagued my business for three and a half years. And I think it's actually been one of the things that has kept us um, at 30-ish, you know, uh, million a year. And we, uh, we just got HubSpot. It's expensive. I think we pay 36,000 a year for it. Um, but it's worth every penny. It's just, it's just worth every penny. It's, it's so funny because people were like, man, that's so expensive for a CRM. I'm like, do you think that the entire system and all the data of everything that you have is worth more than a frontline employee? Just one. Do you think it could provide value to everyone in the company disproportionately to one frontline employee? Well, yeah. It's like, well, like think, you know, think in relative terms. Um, but now we finally are able to track from click to close, which has been, gosh, the hardest thing in the world. And if I could start all over again, so if you are, you know, listening to this, like invest early in really good data systems, like it, it will make your life so much easier. And like, I, I genuinely conservatively can say that we've, we've left 30, probably $30 million on the table over the last three and a half years because of such poor data management and because of our IT systems have been literally the bane of my existence. Um, and so now when I start new things or I talk to new companies, the first thing I'm looking at is what are you using track data? What's your CRM? You know, are you one of a Google sheet, you know, czar? Is that how you're running everything? Great. Let's put the whole system in place. So that's just a huge one that I feel like I now I got the, I got the success from that and I've learned from three years of failures. And so that was a, a really big win for us. Um, Next one is uh, three businesses. You know, I, uh, I shouldn't have three businesses. That's uh, continued to be a lesson of mine uh, because we have Prestige Labs, Gym Launch, and Allen. Um, it's been very hard for me, not from a time perspective, but from an attention perspective to split my attention like that. Um, and so I think part of it is this was like a paired lesson and failure is that I think the decision was incorrect, but I think that the lesson that I learned from it was it forced me to get out of CEO and into investor owner role. Um, and I think that was, that was the gift of the curse. The curse is that like, I now know that I shouldn't do that in the future. And so now I'm trying to, 
um, figure out really how to run these as portfolio companies, if that makes sense. So that's that's been the hard part. Um, and the thing is, is you can't like undo something like that. You know what I mean? I've got, I've got, you know, hundred employees. Like I can't. You know what I mean? So that's uh, those are those are mistakes that are. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos says when I'm making a decision, there's there's reversible decisions and irreversible decisions. Starting a company is in some ways an irreversible decision, and so um, it's not completely irreversible, but it does, you know, it it it's it's long and difficult. You know what I mean? If you want to try and undo that, um, which is either through a sale or you know whatever, um, or just winding it down, or trying to like somehow sustain it and systemize it so it stays at a certain level and doesn't require attention is also hard. Um, and so anyways, that's kind of actually a lot of what I would say I struggled with in 2020, um, that I've, you know, actively been putting solutions together for 2021. So I'll let you know how that goes. Um, this is a big one. Know what your game beyond the game is. Uh, this is a really big one that I've learned in 2020, which is, uh, you know, we've, you know, my wife and I've made a lot of money, uh, over the last three and a half years, we took 35, $36 million out of the business just in direct distributions. So that doesn't include like the actual value of the companies. Um, and you have to know what to do with the money. And I, and I actively, I'll tell you the thought process I had behind this, which was, uh, my second year. So in 2018, we took home 17, four, um, in profit. Uh, so it was two years ago. And while at that point I said, well, if I were to get 20% return on my money, I would make $3.4 million on the 17, right? Um, so me working on my business makes me 17. So I should just keep working on my business and ignore the money. Um, but at a certain point, the kind of the, the lost compounding becomes big enough that, that it, it, it can surpass your regular income. And so, you know, if you look at what 20% over, you know, if, if, for example, I had actively managed it and had $30 million and done 20% growth, it'd be 30 goes to 36, 36 goes to 42. And at that point, you're making $8 million a year. And that's two years, three years later, right? And so uh, at some point, you have to, you, the opportunity cost of not managing the money becomes bigger. Um, and so, and it actually starts to take attention. Like a lot of my attention is getting drained on the fact that just this gigantic, big stack of money that I was like, what am I going to do with this thing, right? I don't want to learn the real estate game. I don't want to learn the the, you know, hard money lending game. I don't want like, there's so many different games for money. I don't want to learn the private equity game. So I spent probably 30% of my year this year on figuring out how to allocate money. Um, and I try to allocate them within our companies because those are things I have direct control over and I'll get disproportionate returns on, which is, you know, candidly why I started prestige labs is because I had all this money from gym launch. And I was like, well, what's an ancillary business to what I currently have that can provide value to my customers that I can use the same, you know, distribution base and shared services on, that I can make, you know, that, that I can get a disproportionate return on. And that's what started Prestige Labs. And and now, you know, two years or two and a half years later, Prestige Labs is a good business. It's a it's a real it's a very good business. Um, it provides a lot of value. We paid over ten million dollars in commissions. Um, so that's been really good. Um, but it I I don't think it was the correct decision at the time, but now that I have it, um, I am grateful that we have it. So that's kind of the the long and short of that one. Um, but knowing your game beyond the game, because it will, it will distract you 
Because what ends up happening is like once you start getting into that world, you get sucked into it, and then your actual business starts losing your attention. That's where your highest return on attention is, is inside of your business, right? Is your income and growing it, right? Because both your net worth and the cash flow from your business, both of the like it's one of the it's one of the cool things about being an entrepreneur is like the net worth that you have in the equity of your business is usually larger than what you have pulled out of your business. Actually, most times it's it's larger than what you pulled out of your business. And so um, that's that's kind of you know interesting. Uh, and so for me. Uh, trying to figure out how to allocate those things has been a priority. So before I, I get the question, I'll just tell you, this is this is what I have uh, invested my money in uh, this year. Uh, first, we have uh, uh, a whole life insurance policy, uh, high cash value um, upfront. You have to be really careful about the people that you work with this because they can totally screw you um, and they are incentivized to screw you. And most insurance agents will not want to hear that, but they, the the commission structure that they have for these policies is insane. Um, it destroys the the cash value that you earn from these things. So, uh, if you decide to set up a whole whole value, whole cash value, whatever uh, insurance policy, uh, one go with the big four. So that's uh, Guardian, New York Life, um, Northwestern Mutual, and uh, UMass um, or Mass Mutual, excuse me. So those are the big four. Uh, they've been all around for over 100 years. You know, New York Life's been around for 183 years. Uh, they predate the tax code. Um, the reason I did that is because it, it basically creates a, a bank account for you that, uh, you can use, you obviously pay costs in the beginning, but you can basically loan against the, the cash value of the insurance. Um, and the cash flow guarantee is, you know, it's guaranteed growth at about 4% a year. And so if you just compare that to a traditional bank account where you're losing money, um, this at least, uh, covers for inflation, right? And so uh, that allows you to at least park the money in a way that's not devaluing itself. And if you do see opportunities, you can loan against it um, and invest in those things. So that's the first thing uh, that we did. Uh, if you ever do one of those, you should be able to break even by year three to five at most. Um, if it's designed properly, uh, they'll tell you that, no, that's going to that's gonna sacrifice the long-term blah, blah, blah of the, of the thing. Um, I think that's horseshit when you, when you compare it to the present day cash, like the value of having your money available to co-invest at the same time is, it's not even an argument in my opinion. Uh, it's also how corporations and banks uh, and Fortune 500 companies structure it. So ask, so look into Coley and Boley, which is corporate-owned life insurance and bank-owned life insurance if you want to see how they structure it because they know what they're doing. Um, and so that is how um, we structured it. So that's number one. Real quick, guys, if you can think about how you found this podcast, somebody probably tweeted it, told you about it, shared it on Instagram or something like that. The only way this grows is through word of mouth. And so I don't run ads. I don't do sponsorships. I don't sell anything. My only ask is that you continue to pay it forward to whoever showed you or however you found out about this podcast that you do the exact same thing. So if it was a review, if it was a post, if you do that, it would mean the world to me and you'll throw some good karma out there for another entrepreneur. Number two, uh, we are investing in B and C class multifamily uh, apartment units, uh, syndications. So that's uh, big apartment buildings. Um, the reason for that is because I think uh, I think single family might get hit hard um, in the next few years because I'm looking at like you know seven year timelines. Uh, I actually think that I mean who knows? I won't even make much prediction because it's there's no point. Um, but I think that that asset class has outperformed other asset classes. Um, and if people downgrade uh, their living standards because of some kind of recession, because I'm really much more about downside mitigation than I am about getting the upside, uh, because my upside's in my business. So it's really like, where can I park money that I know it's not going to go anywhere? And so I take inferior returns to know that I have no downside or less downside. Uh, and so 
parking money in BNC class real estate has been um, one of those those places uh, through syndicated deals. Um, the third place is uh, I have index funds. So uh, that's uh, indexes of the entire market because again, this is one of those things that I don't want to think about and I'm not trying to stock pick because uh, this is not how I make income. Like this is not, this is the thing that everyone is like, man, I could get better. Yeah, sure, you get better returns if you're a daily trader, but you also have a business. So are you going to learn that game and be better than the biggest institutions in the world that have tr you know zillions of dollars to literally destroy you? Maybe, but probably not. And so what you can do is be really good at your business and provide good service and provide good value and make more money that way and then be willing to take the non- premium return, you know, of active management and basically make money on your, on yourself twice. Cause you're making money on income, doing your thing and you get passive, uh, from your, uh, investments. Um, I have a 5% uh, hedge, uh, in crypto. Um, I don't really like speculative things. Uh, but the only reason I have that is because, uh, if for some reason the dollar gets devalued and for some reason we lose the world currency, um, that would, uh, probably greatly appreciate in value and would, the reason it's a hedge is that I'm not trying to make money on it. I'm only saying that I'm putting 5% there so that if that happens, that will probably 5x um, if that were to occur, uh, which would offset the losses I would have in basically the majority of my investments. And so um, that is my, that is the conclusion of my investment strategy um, and what I am focused on. Um, outside of just value creation in the business, because that's actually the fastest way for me to increase my net worth. Okay, uh, next one. If you are financially done, you must have a bigger purpose. So that was one that I learned this year is like, um, you're like, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I'm, I shared my numbers transparently with everyone. Um, I, we need to, um, like, it, you have to, you have to, <laughs> it sounds stupid, you have to really like what you're doing. Um, and have a purpose beyond it. Otherwise, like the money starts being meaningless and it like, it just, it doesn't incrementally change my life in any way. You know, like think, th think about it. Like, I know this sounds crazy, but just like, imagine if buying a Lamborghini, for example, was one week's paycheck. Well, what do you do after you buy Lamborghini the next week? Right. And let's say you buy a crazy house and that's like five weeks of paycheck. Well, then what do you do with the other 40, you know, five weeks of the year's paycheck, right? Like, it, it you know, a steak dinner, you know, like, is is not that expensive in the relative term of things. Like, if I ate a steak dinner two times a day, or, you know, went to Capitol Grill and spent $200 at, at, at three meals a day, even, right? That's $200,000 a year. Um, and that is crazy, for sure. But it's also, like, within the relative scheme, and this is where, like, uh this is where the ultra wealth part starts to get weird. Is that like, if you have $10 million and you grow by 15%, that's a million and a half dollars a year. And it gets bigger. And that's, what's we like, it's, you can't eat it. You can't like, I still eat chicken and rice. Like it's not, you know, be like nothing. I eat bagels and I eat the, the cheap deli meat from the, the supermarket. Like my life hasn't really changed. You know, I have a nicer camera now and there's a thousand dollar camera, you know, but um, you really have to find something that, that I'll put it this way. I have found that I must do work that I find meaningful. And that is what gives me purpose in life. Um, is that what I do, I find the pursuit of that endeavor meaningful. 
um, and the actual process itself enjoyable. And so that is one of my, my bigger takeaways from 2020. Layla and I spent more time together this year um, than we ever have. And man, it was um, the best thing about this year was my marriage got a lot better. Not that it was bad, but it just like, we're just really good. And the whole year has been great, um, which was definitely offset by the craziness of the, of the world. And I think maybe that's, maybe that's why we came even closer together. Um, but really focusing on the marriage has just made my life more enjoyable. Um, even though we actually made less profit this year than we did the last two years. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's that one. Um, I did make one good decision this year. Um, we actually developed a whole CRM for gyms for the same reason I'm bringing up is that you need to have good data management. Um, and I spent a million bucks on this thing and, uh, I realized that I couldn't have four businesses. Uh, and so I pretty much just killed the project and I just wasted a million dollars. So, uh, I make lots of mistakes just so you're aware, uh, lots and lots of mistakes. Um, but that was a good, that was a good decision that starting, it was not a good decision, but not doing the business after I had made it, uh, was a good decision, even with the sunk cost, which was hard. Um, another one is entrepreneurship comes in cycles and seasons. There are seasons of heavy work and there are seasons of, there's seasons of reaping and seasons of sowing. And, um, I think recognizing that there are cycles is really important. Um, and there's even seasonal cycles, which sounds crazy, but now this is like the fourth year, uh, for our fifth year, you know, that we're going into for us. And, Every year, I'm always like, I feel like January through June, I'm like, we're on fire. You know what I mean? And then like by December, I'm like, we suck and we shouldn't be in business and we're horrible. You know what I mean? And then like January comes again and then it's like everything explodes. And so, uh, I, you know, I've now, I come to recognize it and I prepare the team for it. And I think now that this is like my fourth or fifth cycle through it, um, I'm more steady. And so that's been, um, I think, a lesson in seasonality. I was talking to Brandon from Weighty Loss. Uh, Weighty Loss lady boss, uh, weight loss. And he talked about the same thing is that he, he and I started around the same time and he realized the same thing is like, doesn't matter what we do, we are somehow also subject to the cycles of seasonality. Uh, and they always have their, <clears throat> you know, Q1 is always their strongest quarter. Uh, why? Cause people are more motivated in weight loss when they're going into summer, going to spring and just started, you know, just had Valentine's day and new year's Eve. So there's like all the reasons are all right there. Um, you know, once, once it's August, you know, or July, it's not usually a huge, you know, fitness month. And, you know, a lot of my business is correlated to fitness and weight loss. So that was that one. Um, ah, three-year life cycle of products. So the average product or service has like a three-year life cycle. And, um, you know, Gym Launch has had to innovate its, I would say, product suite twice. Uh, so we started with kind of like the whole six-week challenge thing. Um, and then we transitioned to kind of higher ticket hybrid bootcamp packages um, and right now we actually sell the same packages, but the acquisition system is different. It's all outbound based, uh, because that's actually where the biggest arbitrage is right now. Meaning, uh, we can buy leads and get sales. Basically ROI on time is highest there. And so we just continue to see the cycle of, you know, and you kind of get into these transition points where like a new opportunity opens as another one's closing. And then you kind of have to like readjust the product and jump. And that's always just focusing on like what's working best right now. Um, Another one is having multiple acquisition channels and streams is really valuable. Um, now that we have outbound, you know, like I, I teach the gyms what I'm doing with my own business. Uh, having outbound has been really nice. Uh, it's it's stable. It's much more reliable. It's slower for sure to grow. It took 90 days to really get it right for us. Um, it doesn't, doesn't take nearly as long. I mean, for gyms, like we already have the whole system, but for us to start it from scratch and build the whole team and figure out how to find the data. Cause for, like, it's not just trying to find the weight loss. Like a lot of people are overweight. Not a lot of people are gym owners. So there's, you know, 
it's different. Um, it's B2C versus B2B, but we had to figure out, okay, where do we find the data? How do we clean the data? How do we create these lists? You know, what software do we use to cold call? What's the script? What's the hook? What do we say on the opener? How do we train the team? Where do we recruit from? How do we compensate these people? How do we set up the sales process? Is it a two-step or a three-step? Like all those things are things that we had to figure out from scratch. Um, and it took us about 90 days to figure it out. So, but now that we have it, it's actually really great. Um, and it's just really cool having two things that are really firing side by side between inbound and outbound. Um, I wrote this one again, but simple scales. And so simple, like really trying to figure out at all levels, the simplest solution, not like oftentimes the best solution is not the best solution because it is more complex. And the simplest solution, though it might not be the best solution becomes the best solution because it is actually able to be realized. And so that is a lesson that I have learned in, in 2020 more so than any year is like, we have made our product suites simpler and more digestible and immediately actionable. And we are getting better client results now than even when there was like crazy Facebook arbitrage. And that took time, you know what I mean? To just learn that because I would say like a year and a half ago, we had so much stuff inside of our product. That's like, it, it, it could be so perfectly customized. The thing is, is that it was overwhelming for the majority of clients. And so trying to, to, to rectify the complexity versus simplicity equation, uh, you know, you kind of have to find the, the middle ground and the sweet spot for what's going to serve the most people at the highest level. And so that was just reinforced this year. And honestly, right now we're doing, we're, I'm, I'm more proud of the gym launch product now than I've ever been, um, which is pretty cool for me. Um, another one is that you can make the right decisions and be wrong and you can make the wrong decisions and be right. And so this is really hard from a learning perspective uh, because let's say, for example, I bet my life savings on uh, black at the, at, the, at the casino, right? If it hits black, was it the right decision? Probably not. And so I may be rewarded for a poor decision, just like I could make a strategic bet uh, in business that for all reasons was the right call and then COVID hits, right? And then all of a sudden, that's not the that that wasn't the quote right bet, but it was the right decision given the information available. And so, uh, things change. There are market dynamics, and so I instead of beating myself up over decisions, I think if all I had was the the, the decision making criteria that I had available to me at the time, the information available to me at the time was the decision that I made the best decision. And what I don't want to do is unlearn good habits right? Because we're constantly, you know, evolving and growing as entrepreneurs. And so not unlearning good habits um, and, and not reinforcing bad habits that have good outcomes uh, is, is, is something that I have focused on a lot this year. And so sometimes there are short-term trades that have long-term uh, outcomes. And I think this year was actually much more of a long-term focused year for us, ironically, with all the craziness that was going on. Um, we put a lot of foundational stuff in place that I think is really setting the stage for 2021. So pump for that. Um, and I would say my, uh, there's, there's more to this, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably end on this note, which is, um, understanding an expanded time horizon has been immeasurably valuable for me. And this is one of those things where you hear it all the time, right? Um, but it doesn't become real for you. And I feel like it became real for me this year, which was I'm independently wealthy. I don't need any more money for the rest of my life. 
if we grow our current net worth at 10% a year, we'll be worth several hundred million dollars, half a billion dollars by the time I'm 60. And so that probably means I won't need anything. I could stop working now, right? Um, and that allows me to think from a slightly different perspective. But the thing is, is that I think the reason that the rich get richer is because it allows them to think from this perspective. And so the hardest thing is trying to get yourself into this. And so I'm making like, this is, if there's anything that you listen to in this entire video, it is what I'm about to tell you. If you can expand your time horizon beyond months and even a year or two, you will be so much better off. If you expand your time horizon beyond just a month, or a year and actually start thinking in five year and 10 year terms, you will be so much better off. And I think there's, there's so many reasons for that. One is when you bet on long enough time horizons, you can virtually get rid of risk. And if you can make risk fee, risk free guaranteed upside, then why would you not make those bets? The reason uh, Warren Buffett said this, he said, no one wants to get rich slow right? But I would rather get rich for sure than get rich fast and lose it, right? Or, or, or more realistically for many, try and get rich fast for my entire life rather than just saying, well, if I just did this for 10 years, I'd be guaranteed to be a millionaire. And I think that is the issue. And I think that's the problem that the world has. And that's why most people will never become wealthy is because they cannot delay their impatience. They cannot delay their gratification. And so, for me, when I'm thinking about our businesses, I'm now really thinking like, do I think, and this is because I've been reading a lot about investor stuff and I'm like, you know, private equity firms will come in and their goal will be to double a company, you know, uh, in, in five years, right? Double a company in five years. And I think about that with like gym launch and there's so many times where I'm like, oh, we got to double this year. Why didn't we double? But if I'd said like, we just got to double in five and made the plan for that, the plan would look so much different and also so realistically attainable that I think we'd probably overperform that. But what it would do is eliminate the needless frenetic energy of, of oh, we got to do this now. We gotta, uh, you know, like the craziness of the shifts and the turns. And, and like, sure, there's always things that you have to adapt in the marketplace, but it just gives you this steadiness as a leader. And when you can look at f a five-year goal, but like, I've never even believed in five-year goals as a, from a goal perspective, but I think of it in terms of a timeline perspective of like, how am I measuring myself? Like when I think about where I was five years ago, it's, it's not, it's like not even comprehensible. And so, I mean, I hope to have that kind of difference five years from now, we'll see. But I think that if I can take a more steady approach, a more disciplined approach to growth, and to value creation within the company. Everything that I've read about, you know, value-based investing um, and how, you know, companies do turnarounds, which is really valuable if you ever, you know, want to get into a reading topic, look at, uh, you know, by buying and buying and flipping businesses because you look at what they're looking at in the business is what they can do to improve. And so you can basically come in with fresh eyes to your own business and think like, what would I do if I were buying my business fresh from day one today, which is actually a really good thought exercise. And so I've kind of walked through that process. And the things that I would do are different than what I'm actually doing. And so by expanding it to an investor's time horizon, I feel like I'm making much better decisions and I have much better perspective. And um, it's been, 
it's just incredibly calming because I think the reason that entrepreneurs, you know, the double-edged sword of us is that we're emotional people. We, you know, we, ah, I get so excited. And then we have all these ideas and we want to do all of them. And the reality is that you can't, you just can't, you can't even do, you can't even do most of them. You can do a very, very, very small percentage of them. And when uh, a private equity buyer, for example, comes in to try and buy a business and improve it, they will, I'll tell you, actually, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll, this has been really enlightening for you. So I'll tell you what, what they do. So the first thing they do is they create a hundred day plan. Um, and the objective of that 100-day plan is to align uh, the economic interest of the management with the fund who, and the investor who's buying it, right? And the way they do that is they first figure out what their uh, primary two to three KPIs are going to be. That's it, two to three. And then they figure out how to accurately and meticulously track those things. So typically, you know, uh, investors are known for, you know, cutting costs and increasing profits. That's like a, a standard thing that they'll do. Um, but they increase the cost on IT and reporting and diligence. And so for me thinking about that, it's like, okay, that just really shows how important the data and reporting is, which is kind of what I was alluding to earlier. And so they imp implement a lot of ERPs and CRM systems that they already have, you know, tested and whatnot uh, to get the tracking in real time around their KPIs. Now, the number one KPI that they track, which I found incredibly interesting, which we don't track, which is wild, is excess cash flow. And it's crazy because that's the thing I care the most about as, as the owner is what am I depositing in my bank account every month? But uh, as financials become more sophisticated, you look at your profit and your EBITDA and like all the, you know, your P&L and you have to offset revenue based on contract terms and blah, 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 right? But all I care about is excess cash flow. And it was ironic to me that the most sophisticated investors, you know, in the world, some of them, right? Uh, the thing that they care about is the thing that I care about, which is just how much cash are you putting off, you know? Uh, and they have different reasons for that because they can service debt better. They can get better leverage, which means they can get better multiples and blah, 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 and they get better returns. Um, but for me, thinking about that is something that I'm going to be reorganizing our business around, which is how can we, and, 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 and aligning the incentive of the management team around that, that KPI. And so that's what they do in their first 100 days. And then after that, they only create two to three focused task forces, right? Small teams that can be held accountable to um, big domino operational objectives that will provide the most value in the, the, that have high probability of success that will provide the most value to the business. And so that is it. And that's what they do. And they just ruthlessly, ruthlessly manage around those metrics. And I think about that. And what that means is they allow the management and, and leadership team to run the business rather than meddle. And I think that I definitely have a tendency to meddle because I like doing things my way and I want things to sound a certain way and blah, 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 the same things all of us do. And, um, and it's not, it, it's not been, a, it actually hurts the business. And so, um, because it, it removes consistency. And so if we can create consistency of operations, it creates, it creates less waste, right? So you can be more efficient. It creates a more consistent experience for the customers. Um, and so it allows us to make more profit from less waste. It gives, like I said, more value. Um, and it allows us to just focus on a couple of things without feeling the constant overwhelm. So I actually think that our, our team, et cetera, itself would be happier um, with this type of approach. And so that is how I'm kind of shifting my my perspective on our, our businesses now, because we have three of them, um, uh, in doing that. And so that's been really cool. Um, I've also uh, taken on um, a number of small companies that uh, I'm working with. So uh, companies that are doing one to $5 million a year um, that are uh, either, uh, you know, consulting service, uh, knowledge education based businesses, or 
uh, niche brick and mortar businesses um, that you know have have the desire to like franchise or scale uh, nationally. And so those are it's just because that's that's the businesses that I know intimately. Um, and so I'm actually working with some companies there, um, and that's crazy for me because if you think about it from an investor standpoint. Um, I have a company that um, I just recently um, became an advisor to, and uh, they'd been at half a million dollars a year for two years, I think, um, and now we're doing uh, 150000 a week, uh, six months later, right? So that's from $50,000 a month to $600,000 a month, right? Wild. Uh, so pretty, pretty cool, um, very exciting. Um, and uh, I'm just I'm just pumped pumped about the future. I think 2021 is gonna be a good year. Um, I think there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Uh, uh, savings across the entire United States like went up a ton, uh, which means they're printing money and people are holding on to it. Which means that when people start spending that money, we should see a, a boom overall. Um, I do think that you know as we have an entirely democratic uh, president, you know all all three houses or whatever uh, branches of the government are all democratic. I don't think that they're gonna wanna not look good and so i think that they're going to pump the economy as much as they can um which will be good in the short term and we'll see in the long term um as much as everyone's really worried about the inflationary effects um which is definitely a concern there's also really strong deflationary effects going on right now too uh so i also think that the people who who are running monetary policy are probably more knowledgeable than we are it's literally what they do uh for a living full time um so just something to consider there. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, 2020. I have, um, I've, I've, I've had a, I hope you enjoyed this. It's different than the normal types of podcasts that I make. This is kind of the, the top of mind, the things that have been most meaningful for me. Um, and I'm, I think I'm in the best mental place I've ever been, um, which is cool for me. Uh, I'm not a particularly, I would never have described myself as a particularly happy person. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to happy. Um, and I don't really like the word very much, um, because I think it's, it's really misleading. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I'm pretty fulfilled. Uh, I really like what I do. Um, I think I'm, I'm good at it. So I find that fulfilling. I find it challenging. I love the game of entrepreneurship and, um, I'm very grateful to, to be able to play. You know, I really am. And, um, I'm going to leave you with one thing uh, that I, so I talked to my 18 year old neighbor, right? And uh, he's having a hard time. Uh, He's got more stuff that's happened since the last time uh, you've heard a podcast from me, just personal stuff. And, you know, he's, he's having trouble with the sacrifices that are required for entrepreneurship. You know, he's young, he wants to have fun. And, and, and the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the question is, how bad do you want what you claim to want? You know, everybody wants a six pack. It's just that they want donuts more, right? They actually want donuts. They, they claim to want a six pack, but they want donuts more. Right. And I think that that, you know, analogy is the same for business. Like he wants to be an entrepreneur, but it's hard to see your friends partying, um, and having fun and living, you know, their, their youth, youthful lives without you. And it's easy to rationalize and say like, well, I should enjoy my youth. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm really not. Um, I just know that if you, you know, the sooner you start investing in skills, and I'm not saying he's going to, like, investing in skills is the thing, right? What he does to invest in the skills is irrelevant, but investing in skills is how he gets there, and putting a disproportionate amount of time towards developing the skills will allow him to, you know, outpace the competition being, you know, everyone else, right? And 
I said something that when I was 19 was a huge epiphany for me, so I'm just going to share it with you. Um, I was dating a girl for two years uh, in college, and uh, she was very, very obsessed with happiness. It was like, it was her major, it was positive psychology was her major, and she was really obsessed with happiness. And she ended up being um, an amazing person, you know what I mean? But I think at at the base, um, a relatively sad person. And, um, and I know that when we split up and during that time, cause you know, people rub off on you. I, I had become really, really interested in happiness. How do I optimize for happiness? Every, does this make me happy? Like all this stuff. And I think happy is a horrible term. I think it's a horrible term. I think it poisons so many people, you know? Um, and I remember, you know, cause you, you, you're kind of emotional when you're younger and, uh, or probably we're emotional when we're older, we're just better at hiding it. But uh, when we split up, uh, she and I, and I, and I had these habits of, you know, reading all this positivity stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just remember going to this place where I was just like, fuck happiness. I'm just going to win. And that became my new kind of operating standard. I was like, fuck happiness. Like, I'm just going to move. I'm going to take so much action that I don't have to think about it. I don't have to think, I don't have to be alone with my thoughts, right? I'm just going to keep moving and I'm just going to keep getting better and I'm going to keep making progress. I don't care if I'm happy. And a weird thing happened. Um, Once I stopped obsessing about happiness, I actually think that I became more content because the thing is, is I was constantly measuring myself before that to this, what I would say, you know, what consider an unrealistic expectation of the human existence and uh, always finding myself deficient. And so the desire for happiness creates an unfulfilled expectation that makes me unhappy. And disregarding happiness gives me permission to not give a fuck. And if I happen to be happy or enjoy a moment or, or find fulfillment in my work, then it becomes above my expectation. And so I have a positive experience. And so uh, one of the biggest things that I have worked on, and this is what I was talking to my 18-year-old neighbor about, was the only reason that you are upset right now is because of a fictitious expectation that you arbitrarily made up in your mind that you are not reaching that you made up. It's like if I said I wanted to gain 20 pounds of muscle in seven days and then was upset that I didn't gain 20 pounds of muscle in seven days because I worked out hard. It's the same thing, right? I was like, you want to be a millionaire and you're 19. I was like, do you feel like it's reasonable that you think that after two months of beginning your entrepreneurial journey that you don't earn above the top 1% in the United States? Like, do you, do you feel like it's reasonable that after eight weeks of not being in school that you are not in the top 1%? He was like, well, when you say it like that, and I was like, right, but that's what you're thinking. You're thinking like that, right? And so this kind of goes full circle with what I was saying earlier about having the extended time horizon. If we can extend our horizons, then we decrease our own expectations. And by doing so, we increase our fulfillment by default because we expect less or nothing. And while we increase our fulfillment during the process, we actually get better faster. And that was um, 
what I have am having him focus on is like, why don't we say, what's a five-year goal that we believe is reasonable? And let's make it action-based. All right. So instead of I want to make $400,000 a year in five years, why don't we say, what skills will I need to have that would allow me to make $400,000 a year? And then what actions would I need to take to acquire those skills that would be reasonable, even with poor talent, that I would achieve that? And so, for example, we determined that lead generation and sales, if he wants to be an entrepreneur, would be valuable skills. And so I said, okay, how do you think that we can go about guaranteeing virtually that you will have those skills? And he's like, well, you know, reps. And I was like, right. So how do we get reps in? And how many reps do we feel like are reasonable? Right? I was like, do you feel like if you do make 25,000 calls this year, which is 100 calls a day, um, it's just 500 calls times 52 weeks, right? You think you make 25,000 calls, you'll be, you'll be able to prospect and get business. He's like, yeah, I think I, after 25,000 calls, that would be reasonable. I'm like, cool, great. So that's one year. Next year, what do we do? Do you think after, if you took, you know, you know, 20, 20 high ticket, you know, calls a week over 52 weeks, you know, a thousand high ticket phone call closes, you would be able to be at least proficient in sales. He's like, yeah, I think I could do that. I'm like, okay, we're, we're we still have three years left on this, on this timeline. But I can tell you right now, if you can generate leads and you can prospect for your own thing and you can sell at high ticket amounts, you can make $400,000 a year. No problem. But we're only two years in. What else are we going to need? He's like, well, I don't know what I'm selling. I'm like, that's great. So then we have to develop a skill that's valuable, right? And so at that point, I was like, I'm not going to make that goal right now. We're going to develop these first two. And then after that, we're going to go develop the other ones. And so um, I hope these kind of anecdotes about my, my 18-year-old neighbor are, uh, are useful for you. Um, it's really, it's honestly been one of the, it's honestly been one of the most rewarding things for me um, because I feel like I get to live, I can, I can help someone not, you know, suffer as much as I did during that process and really shortcut the, the whole path to success. Um, anyways, I love you guys for listening. Um, this is, I, you know, I appreciate those of you who find this valuable. Uh, this is really just my mental diary for myself so that I can look back, you know, and maybe, Maybe hopefully, you know, in, in decades to come, I'll, I'll be among the, the billionaire bros who donates their, their life, life's net worth to some meaningful cause. Uh, and they'll be like, dude, you got to listen to Hermosi's old stuff. Um, and so hopefully that's what these are. So anyways, um, I appreciate you all. Uh, I'm focusing on simple. I'm focusing on longer time horizons. I'm focusing on finding good people. I'm focusing on getting them focused on just a handful of things and just driving those and doing living a boring but steady business life um, and trying to come into it with no expectations and, um, and being pleasantly surprised about anything that happens. And so that is, that is my outlook. And uh, I know that the world has been rough. Uh, my recommendation is to turn off all media. Um, it, I turned off, I removed all the media from my phone because uh, I thought it was especially overwhelming. And uh, I realized that my life was really the same um, without all of the news. So uh, hopefully that's valuable for you. And uh, I know that the news does not make me more money. And I also know that the news does not help me prepare for what is to come um, independently. Because I think to myself, well, what would I do differently than I'm currently doing if these things were to happen? And the answer is nothing, which means it's not really providing me value. And if it's like, well, I need to stay informed. If there's anything major, I'll find out. Um, I don't need to go surf the news uh, to go do that. So anyways, 2021, I think is gonna be a good year for a lot of us. Um, I think a lot of people grew a lot in 2020 
And so as a result, their businesses will grow in 2021. Like they personally grew. I personally grew more in 2020 than I did in any other year. Um, and I think that we're going to, we're going to, I think the result of that is going to show um, in 2021. So uh, keeping amazing and uh, keeping awesome. Lots of love. And uh, I will catch you guys in the next fit. Bye.